Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Beshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, they were solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rad. Deserves a round of applause for me. I, I, 
couldn't have done that any better. Right? I would have way worse today. That was, that was great. Boys and girls, you want to come up to the front and we'll pray before you head out to Storekeeper's Nursery. we uh, prepare to look at the passage Lauren read for us, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for what we've been learning from Nehemiah over recent weeks. And as we open up to this chapter, we come expectantly. As uh, we will learn from the people of that day, we want to treat your word reverently. We want to listen attentively to what you have for us today. And so for each of us, Lord, all the different points in our journey of faith that we find ourselves today, may this be a time where we hear the living God, the God of this universe, speak to us through his word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, jump back into Nehemiah this morning and this series that we've uh, called Reimagine, I imagine that some of you have put two and two together and come to realize that as I began this series back in September, I was aware that there was a strong possibility I would not be here for the bulk of the implementation of the rebuilding we've been thinking about. Not only that, but I would be actually adding to the significant transitions in the life of this congregation uh, with our departure in a couple of months. But I decided back then it would still be a good series for us to go through because the tools in your toolkit for rebuilding are actually the same whether I'm here or whether I'm not. We've seen already through the earlier chapters of Nehemiah, for example, the critical importance of prayer, what the Welcome Wagon wonderfully referred to on their new album as knocking on the door of love. We pray, we knock on the door of love because we are totally dependent on God for the success of any rebuilding. And then in chapter 3, we saw that this kingdom work is work for all of us to get involved in, irrespective of what particular spiritual gifts God has given to each of us. I mentioned in that sermon how the early church grew through evangelism, but it wasn't the kind of evangelism where you just invited your friends uh, to come to church with you. In the early church, that could actually be dangerous because if you brought the wrong kind of non-Christian uh, to church, you might all be dead the next day. 
So how did they evangelize? They evangelized by everyone doing the work of evangelism. Everybody evangelized people that they knew. Every single person in the body of Christ, whether as we saw in chapter 3, they were a goldsmith or a perfumer or an administrator or something else, was focused on the importance of doing the work of ministry. And then in, in chapters 5 and 6, we saw the importance of, of in, the, in a rebuilding project of the fear of the Lord and how this, this is this trembling trust we talk about around here, and that the, the fear of the Lord fuels the mission of justice, and it, f- it fuels the ministry of generosity, and the relief of all the other fears that we have in our lives. And then two weeks ago, we saw from chapter 7 how, how Nehemiah points to the saints of the past as examples and as motivators and inspiration to believers in the present to persevere in faith and in obedience to God. Now that's quite a tool set that we already have learned from Nehemiah, but today we come to the tool without which there is no possibility whatsoever of rebuilding. It's the book. It's the Bible as we refer to it. Some commentators suggest that the heart of uh, the book of Nehemiah is this chapter, chapter 8, and that at the heart of this chapter and therefore the entire book, is what Nehemiah refers to in verse 1 as, quote, the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. And what he specifically tells us in that verse, is that, as we're about to see, is that all the people were gathered together in one place that day, and together they cry out, essentially in unison, bring out the book, bring out the book. What we're going to see today is that when the book is brought out, it actually leads to something that the people hadn't anticipated it giving them. That thing is reflected in today's sermon in a sentence, which is this, that this book is the unique conduit that leads to your joy. This book is the unique conduit that leads to your joy. We're going to think about that in just two parts today. First of all, our posture to this book, and secondly, the application of this book. So first, our posture to the book. Chapter 8 actually begins a a fairly long section in the book of Nehemiah that goes through the end of chapter 12. Chapter 11, verse 1, Jerusalem is referred to as, quote, the holy city, but a holy city with a protective wall still needs holy people within that wall. And that's the focus of today's chapter and the ones that follow. The people become holy, we're going to see, by studying God's word, chapter 8, by confessing their sin, chapter 9, and by obeying God's commands, that's chapter 10. The last verse of chapter 7, before our reading today, we read that the seventh month had come. Back in Leviticus 23, the Lord commanded that the first day of the seventh month was to be a public holiday known as the Feast of Trumpets. Nehemiah and Ezra obviously knew this, and so they had made plans. We read in verse 4 that a high wooden platform had been built for this occasion on which Ezra and 13 other men could stand, you know that this hadn't just kind of come up overnight. They had been preparing for this for a while. And you can imagine, therefore, that Nehemiah, as he had sent out each detachment of the workforce home at the conclusion of the rebuilding of the wall, that he'd called after each of them as they headed out, saying, now don't don't forget, 
Remember, be back here on the first day of the month so we can spend the day together studying God's word. Any pastor will tell you, however, that it's one thing to announce a meeting. It's quite another for people to actually turn up to the meeting. Nehemiah must have wondered what sort of crowd his meeting would draw, indeed, whether it would draw any crowd whatsoever. There's no guarantee that after the first few days at home, the builders would kind of feel a little comfortable, enjoy the recliner, wouldn't really want to go back to the city again for this Bible study day, still less guarantee that they would bring their families and their friends. So imagine Nehemiah's delight and probably surprise at what transpires that day. Verse 1, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. All the people, according to the numbers in chapter 7, that means there were about 50,000 people there that day gathered not as we might have expected at the newly rebuilt temple, but at the busiest intersection in in the city, the place where people would go in and come out in order to get their water. And in verse 2, we're told it's not just the men and the women who are there. It's their children, too, who were of an age to understand God's word. And they'd gathered as one man, we read. So that having described in great detail in the previous chapter the diversity and the distribution of those who had returned from their exile, the narrative here quickly moves to affirm that the unity of all the people and the focus of their united purpose bring out the book. They desperately want to hear God speak to them through his written word. I want us to notice three things about the posture of the people here to God's word, perhaps as a corrective to some of us on our attitude when we gather here on Sundays, because some of us perhaps approach Sunday services with the same instructions etched in our mind from the most recent flight we've taken, if you've started flying again since COVID, sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. That's as far as you can get from the attitude of these people here in Nehemiah 8. They knew what they wanted that day. They wanted to hear from God, and they know that God has most clearly revealed himself to them in the written word of God. Bring out the book, they say. So they've gathered expectantly, as we've seen. Secondly, they treat the word reverently. Look at verses 5 to 6. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice how their physical posture reflects this reverence for the word. They stand as Ezra opens the Bible. My previous church in Dublin, the tradition each Sunday was that as the service was about to begin, I would follow one of the elders into the sanctuary that elder would be carrying the large pulpit Bible and the congregation would all stand as the Bible was brought in and placed on the pulpit. The intention was basically the same as it is here in Nehemiah 8. But here the, the people don't stand just for a few minutes, a few moments, as they did in Dunleary Presbyterian Church. They're standing for five hours with no coffee breaks, no tea breaks, No nipping out to the parlor to see if there are any snacks today in the middle of the sermon. 
And that just shows how committed they were to, to hearing God's word spoken to them that day. And as they stand, we read, they raise their hands. Obviously, we're Presbyterian. And they shout, Amen, even more so than not Presbyterian. And they bow their heads. Maybe as Presbyterians, we should do some of these things. They weren't worshiping the book here, however. We see that they're worshiping the Lord, the great God, but the God who speaks to them through his word. And so the people gathered expectantly, they treated the word reverently, and thirdly, they listened attentively. Look at verse 3. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, as you piece all the, all the, the, the pieces together of this picture that's described here, you, you have this sense of Ezra and these 13 other men up on this big platform. And since the reading of the law, we're, we're told here in verse 3, went from early morning to, to midday, it's likely that these 14 men were taking turns reading from the law. So if you can imagine Brother Mattathiah, who's mentioned in verse 4 here, getting up, and reading, and then after about 25 minutes, he concludes. But then, according to verses 7 to 8, before the next brother gets up to read, these Levites, who had been strategically placed throughout the crowd, would turn to their section of the crowd to which they'd been assigned, and they'd say, anyone have any questions? And the questions would come, and they would then go back to the section of, of the law that had been that the question was about, and they'd reread it, and then the, the Levite would answer their questions, and then he'd ask, anyone else have any questions? The last part of the chapter that we'll not really get into today, but Lorraine read, we see this increased understanding of God's word just leads to a desire for even more understanding, so that the next day the fathers of the families come back for more study with Ezra and the priest and the Levite, because they just can't get enough of this. And I don't know if I'd go so far as to say these smaller groups led by the Levites on the first day uh, is sort of the biblical mandate for growth groups or Sunday school and the like, but I would say it demonstrates how absolutely important it is in God's mind that the word be understood. And so we do well to foster settings and contexts besides Sunday morning sermons where we can all dig in to God's word deeper together. Reality today, however, is that most people that you and I know would scoff or laugh at the idea that the central source in which to discover the reality of life and of who you are and of what you were created to be and of how you were meant to live, the central source could be the pages of an ancient book for which you and I should gather expectantly, treat reverently, and listen to attentively. Every year, the American Bible Society produces a State of the Bible report. This 2022 report is hot off the press. It just came out in October, and it makes for sobering reading. The researchers noticed an unprecedented drop in the percentage of what they call Bible users in the United States. Now, you should know that the bar for being a Bible user in this study is fairly low. Bible users are defined in this study as those who open the Bible at least three to four times a year on their own outside of a church setting. So you could just read a few verses every quarter, and by this definition, you're a Bible user. 
And so given that, consider this, that in every study since 2018, Bible users have accounted for 47 to 49% of American adults. However, the 2022 data showed a 10% decrease from 2021, which means that just in the space of 12 months, nearly 26 million Americans reduced or stopped their interaction with Scripture. That might be tempting then to look back at Nehemiah 8 and say, well, you know, the word was fresh for them. It was new. They, of course, they were going to engage with it in a way that people don't today. But the reality is that, that when this event took place, the book of the law of Moses was already an ancient book. It was already a thousand years old. There were surely similar voices back then as there are today saying, why would you look to an ancient book to give you guidance in your life? living in a whole new era, a whole new age. And yet here were these 50,000 people who clearly wanted to hear God speak to them in their day, and they knew that meant turning to this book. How do you explain their hunger to hear the word that day? The same way you can explain any hunger we might experience for God's word. It can only be explained by the Holy Spirit working on us, giving us an interest in God, a concern for divine things, a desire for God's blessing that is altogether out of the ordinary, because this is a supernatural desire. Human beings don't naturally turn to God for contentment or for joy. We turn to other things. It takes the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to generate an active desire for God and his word which just takes us back to the first tool that we learned from Nehemiah in our toolkit. It's prayer. So that if you don't see this hunger in your life or in the lives of loved ones, if there's no expectancy there, if, if there's little or no reverence, little or no attentiveness, I would press upon you to pray for it. Pray that the Spirit will produce such desire in your life for His Word because your life actually depends on this. Let me also say that if you're a visitor here today, here for the first time, and you would say, you know, this book, this Bible is completely foreign to me. I don't know what end is up when I open it. If you've never really engaged with it, I'd like to invite you to take one of these books from the back table. It's by a friend of mine called Gary Miller. It's called Read This First, A Simple Guide to Getting the Most from the Bible. It's easy to read. It gives some excellent guidance to those unfamiliar with the Bible. It's our gift to you. Please pick one up. So we see their posture to the Bible, but as we come to the second point, we see a specific reason why you should want the Spirit to produce such a desire for God's Word, as we think, secondly, about the application of the book. And the reason is this, our sermon in a sentence, this book is the unique conduit to joy in your life. Do you want joy in your life? Everyone wants joy in their lives. You need this book. It's what we find in this next section. Let me read to you verses 9 to 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, 
for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 7, we were told that after hearing the reading explained by the Levites, the people understood it. But in this section, we come to see that they evidently hadn't understood everything. The people were moved to weeping from what they had heard from the reading of the law. They had realized how far short short they had fallen from the obedience to God's ways that was expected of them, how they had sinned, how they had grieved the Lord. But then Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites are united in their response to this weeping. Essentially, they tell the people, stop it. Stop the weeping. And this wasn't the leader saying, ah, you know, this whole sin thing, it's way overblown. Sin, not important. Don't worry about it. Don't get so worked out up about it. Now, as we'll see next week in, in chapter 9, the, the leaders will, in next week's chapter, lead the people in a substantial, significant confession of their sin. Sin matters. So why do they tell the people here not to weep? Well, look at the reason they give. Verse 9, this day is holy. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 10, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Verse 11, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Three times they say this day is holy to the Lord, so do not mourn or weep or be grieved. And in verse 12, we're told that the people stopped weeping and they started rejoicing. Why? Because they now were applying the book. They had understood what was declared to them. So what had they understood exactly? Well, the people had understood that the holiness of that day did not automatically mean it was a day for solemnity and for mourning over one's sins. I imagine for some of us, perhaps, we kind of put those two things together. We hear the word holiness and we go, oh, holiness. I need to be somber and sad and mournful. But no, the holiness of the day here comes from it being a reminder of what God had done for the people, which was a cause for rejoicing. That the holiness of, of God lies in him not just being a God of justice and righteousness, which he is, but also of grace and goodness and mercy, which makes for celebration. So three times they're given the commanded alternative to grieving. In verses 10 and 12, it's to feast with food and drink and also send portions to those who had nothing prepared that day. But then also in verse 10, a third way of describing the alternative to grieving is, is given, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I don't know if this would be true for you, but I was actually surprised to discover that this phrase, the joy of the Lord of your strength, only appears once in the Bible, and it's right here. It's one of those phrases that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard frequently enough this phrase, and you think, oh, it must pop up all over the Bible. Well, apparently not. And so the question we have to ask, since this is the only place this phrase appears in the Bible is, what exactly does it mean? What does it mean that the joy of the Lord is your strength? Sounds great, but what does it mean? Well, there are two parts here. First, the joy of the Lord. I think this is referring to the joy that the Lord gives us 
rather than the joy, the joy that the Lord possesses, the Lord that, that, that is his, his himself. So the joy that the Lord gives is our strength. Strength seems a pretty straightforward word, right? Until you do a little bit of research and you discover that while nearly all the modern English translations use the word strength here, most of the commentaries treat this word as stronghold or refuge or fortress or protection. Without hopefully getting too technical for you, the Hebrew word used here appears over 30 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And in our ESV translation, the translation we use here, it's translated 14 times as stronghold, seven times as refuge, seven times as fortress, three times as protection, and only once is it translated strength, right here. So as good Bible students, we ask, okay, well, does the context here encourage the translator to use the word strength to go against the flow of how all the other uh, uses are translated? And actually, we discover here it's the opposite. These people are weeping with grief. As will become very clear in their confession in chapter 9, their grief is over their guilt for their sin, their disobedience to God, their faithlessness. But here in chapter 8, Nehemiah front loads God's answer to their grief and their guilt with grace. He says there's a refuge available. There's a stronghold. There's a protection for you against your sin and against God's judgment. And what is that refuge and protection? It's the joy of the Lord. It is what he has done in order that you might rejoice despite your sin, despite your disobedience. So leave your grieving aside and come into joy because of what God has done for you. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. The elders and I have been reading a book together uh, since February called J-Curve, uh, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life by, by Paul Miller. It's a book, I think, that complements what Nehemiah is telling us here, uh, really teaching the same thing, but using the language of death and resurrection, dying and rising, instead of Nehemiah's language of grief and joy. And Miller begins by laying out how the the J-curve really uh, describes the pattern of Jesus' own life, of his own dying and rising as he, as he kind of descended through his incarnation and then into his death, and then he ascends upward into his resurrection and exaltation. But from there, Miller then follows the Apostle Paul, who shows us that the J-curve is also the map of the Christian life. And that redefines for us our expectation of what the normal Christian life looks like, such that we start to realize that we should kind of expect a life of dying and rising, dying and rising, that continually reenacts Jesus' life. Ancient paganism agreed with the, the downward part of the J, the secret to life for ancient pagans, was facing the dying, not running from it, life for the pagans was an endless circle where death would always have the last word. But Jesus' resurrection comes and tells a whole new story, a story the world had never heard before, that life follows death. Joy follows grief. So not only do we have a map, but we have a map that leads us out of grief, out of dying, 
to resurrection and to hope that as Christians, we're never stuck in despair. I think this is incredibly helpful as you and I navigate the Christian life. We get reoriented so that we realize that we, this is what we sort of should expect. We shouldn't be surprised by, by the dyings, by the grief. We should expect a life of dying and rising, this ongoing reenactment of Jesus' life. So when friends disappoint you or families let you down or pastors announce their resignation, it can feel like a death. We hurt. We grieve. We're upset. Maybe we even feel a little betrayed. But the amazing truth is that in the Christian life, you're not stuck there. Your dying is a temporary thing. The J-curve reminds me that I'm caught up into the reenacting the most magnificent story ever told, which is the gospel. That I'm not just believing the gospel, I'm becoming like the gospel. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that having discussed all of this in our study time together at session on Tuesday night, my announcement about our departure felt to the elders like it kind of fit the dying part of this curve. From emails and texts and conversations with some of you this week, you felt a similar way, and I, I completely understand given the circumstances. But the good news is that the map of the life of PCKS is also a J-curve. And the dying stage is temporary. And that this is another opportunity in the long history of this church to reenact the magnificent, most magnificent story ever told, which is the gospel. And if I may, allow me to remind you of just one of the times when God has taken this church through the journey of the J-curve already. I hadn't thought of this until on Friday during the online prayer time, Olga Stokes uh, mentioned in the prayer how 15, 16 years ago, those of you who were here uh, probably would say you kind of felt like you were in the trough of the J-curve. Sense of dying rather than rising, grief rather than joy. Some of you have told me over the years that you honestly wondered whether the church would keep the doors open at that time. And then by God's surprising providence, God put this Irish Presbyterian pastor from Dublin on your radar. And one conversation led to another and to another and to a visit and a second visit until Tara, Duncan, and Fiona and I moved here. And on August the 1st, 2008, I became your pastor. And I'll confess, be the first to confess, I've been far from a perfect pastor to you. I've, I've failed at times. I know I've disappointed some of you at times. If I had it to do all over again, I would do some things quite differently. But God in his grace has blessed us with 14 years of significant gospel fruit here. Our map has taken us from dying to rising, from grief to joy. And you know what? He's going to do it all over again. He's going to do it all over again because that's what he does. And knowing how God loves to amaze us and do way more than we ever imagine or dream, I have a hunch that the next 14 years are going to be way, way better than the last 14 years. Because the normal life of a church is a life of dying and rising that continually reenacts the most magnificent story ever told, which is the gospel.
But to close, let me return to the statement in verse 10 that the joy of the Lord is your stronghold, your refuge. Our, our greatest joy comes from knowing that we have a refuge from the consequences, from the punishment and the penalty for the sin we've committed, for our failures, for our faithlessness towards God. If you'd ask someone there at the Watergate that day, what's that refuge that you have exactly? I think they would have said, well, well God, God is our refuge. God, our Savior, is our refuge. And we can say the same thing, but we get to say it with, with greater specificity. His most recent book, Think Again, Adam Grant tells the story in the prologue of a man called Wagner Dodge. Wagner Dodge was a firefighter in Montana who led a team of 15 men. They were called smoke jumpers. They would parachute in to extinguish a forest fire that had started uh, by lightning the day before. No matter of moments, they would be racing for the, their lives. On one occasion in 1949, Dodge and his team were caught off guard. The team had parachuted into a place called Man Gulch and soon realized that the fire was much more aggressive than they had anticipated. A wall of fire that stretched as high as 30 feet in the air quickly approached the team and, and shut off from them all known routes of escape. And just as Wagner was about to be overrun by this flame wall, he had an idea. He lit matches and he threw them directly in front of him. And the matches quickly lit up the prairie around and this circle of fire began to expand. And then Wagner jumped over the outer limits of the circle and he ran to the middle where the matches had landed and he lay face down in the charred area for the next 15 minutes. Wagner survived along with two others who had followed him 12 of the men perished because they failed to follow Wagner. What did Wagner Dodge realize that those 12 men didn't? He recalled that fire only passes over somewhere once. Fire only passes over somewhere once. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus would come to this same city in which 50,000 people had gathered one day on a feast of trumpets. And he would be put to death on a cross outside those walls that these people had built. And the fire of God's judgment on sin was poured out on Jesus that day as he hung on the cross. But because fire only passes over somewhere once, there is a place that you and I can find refuge from the fire of God's judgment that we deserve. That all who take refuge in the burned out shadow of the cross of Jesus are safe. Yes, God's justice demands that sin be paid for. But his justice demands that it only be paid for once. And Jesus made that payment when he died. And then he continued on that J-curve, rising to resurrection life and, and exaltation, so that when you and I take refuge in him, it leads you and I from death to life and to the greatest, greatest of joys. The joy of the Lord is your refuge, it's your stronghold. And how do we know that? Because of what we read in this book. This book that is the unique conduit to joy in your life. Whoever fills this pulpit, whether now or in the future, may your call on that person never cease to be 
bring out the book. Bring us the book. Bring out the book. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that as things change in our lives and circumstances uh, go in directions that we perhaps had not uh, anticipated, that you are the constant. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you have revealed yourself to us in this word. Your word is sure. Your word leads to joy. We pray you'd give every one of us a renewed hunger for your word, a desire to come expectantly and to treat it reverently and to listen attentively, because, Jesus, you have the words of life. Praise you and thank you for this word. In your name, Jesus. Amen.